Such a wonderful thing to be here this morning to engage in these worship activities, bringing us closer to God and closer to one another and honoring him and his son, Jesus Christ, who indeed did come to this earth and live a perfect life and die a horrible death, but was raised the third day to reign and live forever. We're so thankful for the resurrection of Christ today and for the time that we can have today to talk about that and think about it and think of the power of it in our lives as Christians. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the core truth of Christianity. If it is true that Jesus is, in fact, raised from the dead, then he is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only name under heaven that can bring us to eternal fellowship with God. Wayne has already read for us this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, and I'd like to begin with that as well as we consider the power of the resurrection of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul has said, as Wayne had mentioned, he's talking about having all, all that he has given up in order to follow Jesus, and he said, all that's trash to me, it's all rubbish. He says, yet indeed I also count all things lost. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So Paul just lays it all out there, that he's willing and has, in fact, given, given up everything and given himself his all to knowing Christ, to knowing all about him, his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and in so doing, he feels confident that in that, he can become conformed to the very resurrection of Jesus Christ itself. And to him, then, his life in Christ was uh, summated in all that he talks about there. But let's focus on understanding the power of the resurrection and what that means as far as then what we will know, what we will understand about who Jesus is and what the resurrection has accomplished. The power of his resurrection is the power to produce faith in Jesus as God's son. In fact, it is, it is the proof, the main proof, that the gospels offer for Jesus being the son of God. Jesus, in demonstrating uh, his, his power through many miracles and signs, was showing himself to be the son of God. Uh, Peter makes that point. Uh, John makes that point in the Gospel of John. But it is the, the, the resurrection of Jesus that is the superlative miracle, that is the ultimate thing that brings us, that forces us, really, if we accept it, to this grand conclusion. Listen to Paul's words as he opens up uh, the epistle to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, 
and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Notice that. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. What is the power of the resurrection? It declares Jesus to be the Son of God. The fundamental fact of our faith that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the resurrection declares. And if then the resurrection is true, Jesus must be the Son of God. And everything that he said, and everything that he asked the apostles to tell us, and everything that he has asked us to do, to have fellowship with God, is absolutely right and absolutely true. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 30, the Apostle Paul makes this same argument. Speaking to the people in Antioch of Pisidia, he says, God raised him from the dead, talking about Jesus. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were who are his witnesses to the people. So it wasn't just that Jesus was raised from the dead, but there's evidence that he was raised from the dead. And part of that, a big part of that evidence, is testimonial evidence. You know, if you go to court, if you're found guilty or innocent of whatever it is that you're charged with, you know how they determine that? By testimony. Testimony is still accepted today in any court of law in the United States of America. It is how uh, innocence and guilt are established. Jesus Christ is guilty of being the Son of God. We can establish it by testimonial evidence. There were witnesses who saw him, credible witnesses, truthful men and women who were willing to die for their testimony. Paul says, they're his witnesses to the people. And then he goes on to say, say in verse 32 of this text, We declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled for us their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So then Paul says something else. Not only is there proof of Jesus' resurrection in testimony, there's evidence of it in prophecy. And he mentions one prophecy. There are others that we could look at in the Old Testament. But the point is, the Bible presents us living testimony that Jesus was raised and also prophetic testimony that he would be raised. We'll get back to further proof of the resurrection in a minute. But because Jesus is, in fact, raised from the dead, he is, in fact, fully the Son of God. Peter's argument in Acts 2 and verse 24 is like this. God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Think about that phrase with me for a minute, everybody. It was not possible that he should be held by it. I want to tell you what, me and you as mere mortals, it's really possible that we could be held by death. But you know what death cannot hold? God. Him who is, in fact, the very source of life. In him was life, and his, the life was the light of men, John 1 states. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you can't kill life, right? Not eternal. He is, he is the life. It was not possible that God's Son could be held by the power of death. And so that demonstrates to us that he is indeed God's son. And because of the resurrection, then the second thing about it that 
demonstrates its power is that it has the power to produce hope of eternal life in us. Not just because of the testimony of witnesses, not just because of the testimony of prophecy, but there's further testimony in, in fact, the empty tomb. I want you to think about the empty tomb with me for a minute. How did the tomb become empty? Somebody come and steal away the body? It's not likely. It was guarded. Uh, Jesus just fainted and didn't really die on the cross, and he got up and walked out. That sound very plausible? Couldn't have happened. How'd the tomb become empty? Because the tomb became empty, and it's still empty today. How did it get that way? Interesting occurrence in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 6. The angels who met the women who'd come to the tomb on that Sunday morning, they'd come to finish the process of preparing the body for burial, which had not been completed in haste as Jesus was buried that Friday evening. But in Matthew 28 and verse 6, the angels tell the women, He is not here. He is risen. As he said, what's the first evidence that the angels offer to these women who are the first witnesses? What's the first evidence that the angels offer? Listen to what they say. He is risen. Come see the place where he laid. These women had watched Jesus be put in that tomb. They'd seen the stone rolled up against it. That Friday before, as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were putting the tomb putting Jesus in the tomb. They had seen all of that. Now the angels are saying, come see the place where he laid. He's not in that tomb anymore. There's the first piece of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Seeing the place where he lay was proof that he was raised. It was proof to the apostle John, apparently. When you turn to John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene has found the tomb empty along with the other women. She runs and tells Peter and another disciple, apparently John. And so Peter and John run to the tomb to see what's there. And the text says Peter lost the race. John got there first, but John didn't go in. Peter gets there. He comes following him in John 20 and verse 6. And he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not with the linen clothes, but folded together in, in a place by itself. Who robs a grave? Who steals a body and folds up all of the linen, including the headpiece, and folds it off together by itself? Who does that? Does that sound like a robbery? Who wakes up from a three-day uh, coma and gets up and, oh, the well, first thing I need to do is fold up all my clothes here, right? No, every woman here knows no man would ever do that, right? <laughs> but that's the condition of the tomb. That's the condition of the tomb. And Peter sees it. And then John follows him in and sees it. The other disciple who came to the tomb first saw it. He went in also, verse 8 of John 20 says. And guess what? He believed. He believed what? Jesus was raised. As far as I can tell, John is the only one of the apostles who believed on the basis of the empty tomb, that Jesus came back from the dead. I think all of the others still doubt it. There's indication of that in Jesus' later meetings with them. But John saw, John saw the power of that empty tomb and therefore understood the power of 
the resurrection. This very fact of the empty tomb is really what was a big part of convincing the people on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, you had, you had 12 witnesses of the resurrection telling the people they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. But I'm not sure that was the most powerful piece of evidence that caused 3,000 people to believe in Jesus at that point. In, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 29, Peter says this after he quotes from David. He says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Da David had been dead for 900 years, and I take it from what Peter says, that you could still go to the tomb of David in his day, when Peter's saying this, and you could have opened it up, and there would have been the bones of David in there. And yet, Peter says this, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, and Jesus, by the way, we noticed already in Romans chapter 1, from the flesh came from the seed of David. Remember that. So Jesus comes from the seed of David. God had promised that the seed, from the seed of David, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So notice the two bits of evidence here that Peter's presenting. We're all witnesses of this. Us 12 are witnesses of the resurrection, but also you got an empty tomb. We could go to David's tomb. There's still bones in there. There's no bones in, in, in Jesus' tomb. And he was only crucified, you know, seven weeks ago he was put in that tomb. And three days later there's, there's no body in there. There's no bones. There's, there's, no, there's no corpse. It's not there. What happened to it? I tell you that the empty tomb is still proof today. Valid proof, as the testimony is, as the prophecies are, of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we've noted before, the pyramids of Egypt are famous because they contain mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian kings. Westminster Abbey is noted because within its walls are contained the remains of many notable people. Muhammad's tomb is visited because of a coffin and bones that are in that coffin. Arlington National Cemetery is visited because of the remains of a great many honorable, heroic people who are interred there. But the garden tomb of Jesus Christ is visited because it's empty. Because it's empty. Jesus rose from the dead. And that reality is so powerful. Because he w was raised from the dead then. The point of all of this is because we know he was raised from the dead. We know that we can be raised also. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he may die, he shall, he shall live. 
Look in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul, in, in, a, in a, a, a very elaborate presentation really, a full presentation of this, this focal point of Christianity out by talking about the gospel that was preached to the Corinthians. And, and the, a key facet of that gospel, as we've already said in the early verses of 1 Corinthians 15, is that Christ was raised from the dead and he appeared to all sorts of people, to the apostles, to 500 men at once, and last of all to, to Paul as a, as a child untimely born. And then Paul begins to talk about the ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus and he says, now, if Jesus isn't raised, if, if there's no resurrection, and Jesus isn't raised, then, then none of what I'm saying to you, none of Christianity makes any sense or has any validity. It's, it's all hinging on this one, one fact. Listen to him in verse 12. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So if Christ is preached from the dead, there must be a resurrection of the dead, a general resurrection of you and me, of these Christians. That's Paul's point. How can you preach Christ as raised from the dead and say Christians aren't going to be raised from the dead? So he goes on to say, if there's no resurrection of the dead, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Jesus whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. We'll get back to that later. Therefore, then, also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So if, if there's no resurrection from the dead and if Christ did not raise, then when somebody dies, they're dead like Rover, they're dead all over, and they're never coming, never coming back. That's the consequence of no, re, no resurrection, of Jesus not being raised. If in this life we have only hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. For we hope in that for which there is no hope. That's his point. But then, he says... Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. The first fruits. Among other things, demonstrating that there's going to be more fruit. You know, when you pick that first tomato off the vine that's nice and, and, and red and ripe, you know what? You've got a lot more tomatoes on that vine, don't you? And you can't wait for them to get nice and red, too. The first fruit speaks to us of more fruit that's coming. And so the Scriptures, repeatedly, attach our hope of resurrection to the resurrection of Christ. Because if Christ came back, if Christ conquered death, God raised him up, he can raise us up too. Peter says about it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have a living hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And there's the word. The power of the resurrection. The power that Jesus, that God used to bring Jesus out of the grave is the same power He's using us, using to bring us out of the graves. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 14. Knowing that He has raised up the Lord Jesus he will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you.
Long ago, a guy by the name of uh, Bill Shakespeare, William Shakespeare wrote about death that it is the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. I want to speak to you for a minute about the transparent falsehood of that statement. Shakespeare is saying nobody comes back from death. First of all, if no traveler has returned, then it's not really logical to say that beyond the grave there is nothing. If no traveler has returned, the question is open. Could someone return? So to say no one ever will is kind of an assumption, isn't it? But far beyond that, the poet does not tell the truth. Christianity says one traveler has returned. Jesus died and rose again. Of course, he's not the only one to have ever come back from the dead. He brought at least three people back when he was on earth. And others came back even in the Old Testament. But if one traveler has returned, it's, it's very strong, presumptive truth that there is a power that exists that may bring others, maybe all others, back from the dead. And that as Jesus spoke while he was on the earth, the hour is coming when all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. That's the promise of John chapter 5. There is, there is a, a, an ancient fable that's told of a fox that was visiting his friend, a lion, who was sick. So he was going to visit his sick friend, the lion, right? So he gets, gets to the lion's cave and uh, kind of peers in a little bit. And then he hears a voice of his friend, the lion, that says, come in, welcome, friend. And the fox, being a wise animal, looks around and says, no, I think I'll just be going today. As I see the footprints of many animals leading into your cave, into your den, but none coming out. I don't believe I'm going in there today. <laughs> and so it is, if we come to the cave of death, and there are a lot of footprints going into that cave, but none coming out, we have little hope. But there's at least one set of footprints that comes out. And those are the prints of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who gives us hope. There's no one else who can offer this hope in the face of death. In Jesus' conversation with Martha, Jesus asked her, Do you believe this? Do you believe I am the resurrection of the and the life? And she says, again, the very fundamental confession of Christianity. Yes, Lord, I believe. The power that gives us hope of eternal life is in the resurrection. The power of his resurrection is that our lives in Christ are enabled and empowered. How can we mortals who have already get, been given over to sin, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and then how can we participate in His great glory? How can I live a life 
that is a life that honors Him? And how can I live a life that He will accept? That He will accept me in the end? The answer is through the resurrection. The resurrection says to us that we do not have to live in sin. Jesus came to free us from our sin. That was the announcement that Peter made to those in Acts chapter 3. In Solomon's porch after uh, he had healed the lame man. He tells the Jews that to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. The resurrection, the raised Christ, has the ability to turn everyone away from their iniquities. Paul writes in Romans 4 and verse 24 that it is in the power of the resurrection that we are justified. He says, It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him, who raised up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, who has delivered it up for our offenses and was raised up for our justification. It is in the resurrection that we are justified before God. What this means, what we're saying is, what God is telling us is that there is nothing he cannot overcome for us. You see, what would be harder to overcome than death itself? If we look at life on the night Jesus was crucified, everything seems hopeless, right? Here, Mary's son, the Messiah is being murdered on a cross and finally dies a horrific death. The disciples are scattered and dejected and fearful. People like Peter go and cry their eyes out. Mary Magdalene, filled with grief, comes to the tomb early Sunday morning. It's been a dark three days. And there's no hope of anything. But then the tomb is empty. And then Jesus appears. And all of a sudden, everything that was dark, everything that was impossible, everything that was lost, the darkness is turned to light. The impossible is turned to possible. In fact, it happened. And it all came true. If you look at life on that Friday the death of Jesus, nothing was possible, but if you look at the resurrection, everything's possible. Because if Jesus came back from the dead, anything can happen. God can do anything if he can bring you back from the dead. And that means, that means that he can conquer, he can conquer in your life the sin that has ensnared you and entrapped you and bound you. That God has the power to set you free. How do I know that? Because he set Jesus free from the bondage of death. And the power that can do that can conquer anything. There is nothing that is too hard for God. Nothing. He said that long ago, and because of the resurrection, we must believe it. There is nothing that is too hard for God. And so as I look at my life and your life, as we strive to live, if Jesus can beat death, he can beat anything. We look at life on Friday and all is lost. We look at life on Sunday when he's risen from the dead. And there's victory in Jesus. 
Jesus' resurrection is the very thing that empowers baptism, empowers us to be saved in baptism. Look at the way this is put in several passages. Notice with me, first of all, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, where Peter speaks of a time when God's patience, this is the ESV by the way, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, eight persons, were brought to safety through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the resurrection that makes baptism effective. What happens in, in baptism? We, we die to sin, we die with Christ, we're buried in baptism, and we're raised to walk, what? In newness of life. That's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? His death. He died. We were buried with him. He was buried. We were buried with him in baptism. And then that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also might walk in newness of life. You see, it's baptism that gives us salvation by the power of the resurrection. It's not just the death of Christ that's active in baptism. It is that. But as Wayne spoke to us this morning, the death of Christ isn't completed until the resurrection of Christ. And it's almost hard to look at them as one without the other being meaningful. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 Paul very plainly puts it this way. He says that we are buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so I also believe that God, when, he raised, when I came out of baptism, he raised me up to live a new life. That's the same power. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, God raised me from my life in deadness of sin. I was dead in sin, and God gave me a new life. That's the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection gives us new life in Christ. The Lord's Supper points us to the coming of Christ because of the resurrection. I want to spend just a few minutes on this. We're not going to go too late today, I don't think. Let me spend just a couple of minutes with you on what I think is a really important, sometimes missed point that we often allude to when we take the Lord's Supper, but I'm not sure how, how much we've thought about it. I'm not sure I thought about it like I ought to, frankly. And, and that is, we show the Lord's death until He comes. And he comes because he was raised from the dead. He couldn't come back if he wasn't raised from the dead, right? So there's implicit in our taking the Lord's Supper an acknowledgement of the resurrection. You can't take the Lord's Supper without showing the Lord's death until he comes. He's alive. He's coming back. There's a song that we sing. In fact, I think we sang it last Sunday. Uh, it, it's a song entitled, By Christ Redeemed. Uh, it was written by a man uh, by the name of George Rawson. 
And it has been used for the last 150 years or so, a lot of times before the Lord's Supper. I've sung it often in my life, probably you too. By Christ redeemed and Christ restored. The Bible teaches us in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 that Jesus came and died for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. If we're, if we're Christians, we have been redeemed by Christ from every lawless deed. We have been restored by Christ. He reconciled us to God. Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20 says, By Christ redeemed and Christ restored, we keep the supper of the word. So it's those of us who have been redeemed and restored by Christ who keep this supper. The one that we kept this morning, the Lord's Supper. It's not called here the Lord's Supper, though it's called the Supper of the Word, interestingly, in this poem, in this song. Because, after all, Jesus is the Word. He's the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the Word who was beheld as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word, and it's His Supper that we're taking. And we show the death of our dear Lord until He come. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He come. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. The death that He died, the death that was great, the greatest love of all, that He laid down His life for us. His body given in our stead is seen in this memorial bread. So as we As we take of the Lord's Supper, we, we are remembering a body that was given for us. He became a curse for us. He died for us. His body was given for us. In our stead is the phrase in the song. And it's seen in the bread. Take, eat, Jesus says. This is my body which was broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And as we drink, we see the blood. We see it in our mind's eye. We understand. We understand what it means for that blood to have been shed for us. It's a covenant that God has made with us through that blood. And we remember the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. And so you come to the end of that song. And here's the connection to all that we've been talking about. And thus, that dark betrayal night, with the last advent, we unite. Let's just focus on this for a minute. That dark betrayal night. In John 13 and verse 30, when Judas went out to betray Jesus, John just notes this, and it was night. It was a dark betrayal night. From that point on, it would be just a few hours before Jesus was hanging on the cross. From, the, from that dark betrayal night, we are uniting something with the last advent. The word advent means coming. Jesus coming the first time was the first advent, if you will. Jesus coming the second time, an advent is the coming of an important person. The last advent is his second coming. So when the text tells us, we show his death or we proclaim his death till he come. We're talking about the last advent. Till he come is the last advent. So from the betrayal to Jesus coming, 
The text says we are connecting them by one bright chain of loving right. R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T. R-I-T-E is a ritual, a rite. The Passover in the Old Testament in Exodus 12 in the ESV is called a, a rite. Something that is a, a holy habit that is done to honor God. That's a ritual. That's a rite. The rite that's being spoken of here is the Lord's Supper. By this one bright chain of... Where's the chain? Every week. First day of the week. For 2,000 years, Christians have been keeping the right, the supper, every week. We are the light of the world. There's a golden chain made up of first days of the week from Acts chapter 2 to today, where Christians all over the world show his death until he comes. And he comes. And he will come. Because of the power of the resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Is the power that enables us. To have new life in Christ. We are raised to live a new life. On a higher plane. To seek those things that are above. If then you were raised with Christ, is the way Paul starts this in Colossians chapter 3. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. You're raised with Him, you seek those things where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ calls me higher. It calls my mind higher. It causes me to set my, my mind on heavenly things where Jesus is. For if my life is all about Jesus, Jesus is the resurrected Lord. The in heaven Lord. Who lives and reigns forever. And so I am sitting with him and you and I are sitting together with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 and verse 4. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses. We were dead like Christ was dead physically. We were dead in trespasses and sin. He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up together. He's raised us up, all of us, together. And we are sitting in the heavenly places. To sit together in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. And so our... Our very existence as Christians is a spiritual one. And we're connected to one another because we're connected to Jesus who lives forever because of the power of the resurrection. And we know that we will live together as well. And so our entire life is an experience of all things new. And nothing of death and decay remains. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What's the power of the resurrection? The power of the resurrection right now this morning is to change your life for all eternity. You might be saying to me, preacher, it can't be done. I've tried. I can't do it. You're right. You can't. God can. 
The power of the resurrection is to change you in such a way that you will be unrecognizable spiritually. That's the power of the resurrection. That everything will be new. You'll be a new creature. There'll be as much difference between what you were and what you will become as the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. You will be changed. This morning, that can happen to you. Because yes, Jesus lived. And because yes, Jesus died. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, it can happen to you. If you would give your life to the Lord, submit yourself to baptism as we've talked about, to experience in faith the effects of the power of the resurrection, what a glorious day this would be. Please make that decision while together we stand and while we sing.